You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We rely on the financial support of listeners like yourself to keep going. If you'd like to support diverse voices on your radio, go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program has been broadcast by the Community Radio Network from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. Well, actually, the virtual studios. Ether, I'm actually not in the studio. Like everybody else, I'm socially isolated. I was speaking to a friend a few days ago and she said to me, well... The only difference is I now don't have coffee. Now, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, the word anarchos means without rules. So an anarchist society is a society without rules. How do you create a society without rulers? You devolve power, that's shared power, and you hold wealth in common, share wealth. Very apt concepts during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm going to divide... I'm going to look at the costs of the COVID-19 crisis. And obviously, as we usually do in the anarchist world this week, it's not just about uh, complaining, carping. We're not complaining, carping consumers. We've got concerned citizens. We have ideas on uh, how to deal with the situation and more importantly, how to deal with the future. And we'll be looking at the health costs of the COVID-19 crisis, the economic costs, of the COVID-19 crisis and the security costs. Yes, there are security costs. So as we know, life has changed dramatically in some ways and has changed and has not changed in any other way. And we are seeing a jockeying or position by a whole variety of um, interests uh, regarding uh, a number of issues uh, around COVID-19. Now, the health costs. Now, the health costs are largely being borne by the poor. Viruses tend to attack people who are in no position to defend themselves. Uh, you'll find that if you live in an overcrowded environment, you're much more likely to get COVID-19, social isolation and no social isolation. And it's no, it's no, um, it's nothing to know that obviously many countries of the world where there are high death rates and high infection rates, the 
the infection is being borne, uh, the cost, the health costs, is being borne by those who are not in a position to actually um, look after themselves. Now, as far as health costs is concerned, as I've been saying over the past few weeks, Australia is in a good position in terms of dealing with the issue, not just because of social isolation, but because we have a health care system which has been created through the struggles of generations of Australians, which provides universal health care. We have a universal free public health system. The United States doesn't have a universal three public health. And many other countries in the world that are suffering uh, don't, don't have a universal three health system. If they do, it's been destroyed through the uh, through neoliberalism, you know, globalisation, privatisation, corporatisation, deregulation. And it's all very well for Mr Boris Johnson to come out of the uh, NHS system and say they saved my life. Well, maybe the Conservatives in England will put a little bit more resources into the national health system, which was created as a consequence of people coming back from the Second World War demanding to have access uh, to health care. So that we've got that. We've got a universal public health system, irrespective of what they have tried to do to it over the last 40 to 50 years, privatise various, various segments of it, give money to the private health insurance industry, dollars for private hospital network that basically cherry-picks and doesn't look after severe and difficult cases as we have seen COVID-19. But it is there. The structure is there. Although the hospital system is run by the states and partially funded by the states and funded by the federal government, it is there. The structure is there and it is there so it can provide universal public health care. The second thing we have going for us, we have a universal medical insurance scheme which is called Medicare. So people can actually access medical care outside the public health sector and in many situations, especially in general practitioner consultation, 75 to 80% of all consultations are possible. And I remember at the beginning when Medibank was introduced, the original name of Medicare, in 1973-74, the resistance among all segments of the community, including doctors, nurses, um, uh, private organisations, to the concept of having Medicare in this country. But I think uh, although there have been many, many campaigns to destroy Medicare and they have attempted to destroy it uh, by a variety of issues, it is still there, so that structure is there. The third structure is a pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which means that many medications, which are quite expensive, are subsidised, not just for people on Social Security benefits, but subsidised by the rest of the community. So we have the basis of a cooperative universal healthcare system, which can deal with the COVID-19 crisis, although fortunately the death rate here puts distancing, social isolation uh, is about less than one percent. Well, in some places, it's up to seven, ten percent of everybody who gets COVID-19. So, although we have an elderly population who have a lot of comorbidities and disability, uh, we have been able to stem the tide into a significant degree because of the structures which have been created.
created by men and women who have struggled for generations to ensure that. Now let's look at the economic cost. Because these are the big costs. Economic costs. Now there are significant there are significant economic costs today. Very significant economic costs, which are not being borne by the whole population. They are being borne mainly by people who are involved in service industry, things like restaurants, cafes, gymnasium, yoga studio, the list goes on and on. Any industry where there is face-to-face interaction. Although currently we're on stage three restrictions around the country, construction grind on. So what have been the big sticking points as far as the economic cost has been the concept of rent, whether it's a commercial rent or whether it's a private rent. When you lose your income stream in a 24 hours notice, there are major issues. And the major issues have been contained to some degree by the increase in the job seeker allowance, which will increase on the 27th of April and by the introduction of a JobKeeper allowance, which will not be in place at least the end of March. Now, both systems are quite complex. It is very difficult to access. There aren't enough public servants to deal with the situation. Dealing with Centrelink for job seekers has become a nightmare, and I assume we will have significant issues as far as as far as other issues are But what is interesting is there has been no real solution to the idea of commercial rents. What small businesses are concerned about that have been forced to close down through a government edict, what they are concerned about is rent. They're concerned about leases. The legislation which has been put into place does not allow a tenant to break a lease. So those leases which are in place will continue. There is no mechanism by which a tenant who knows they're going to lose their business and will not reopen can break that lease. Secondly, although you may go into negotiation with the owners of that particular building, there is no legal reason imperative that they will reduce the rent. Although they can't evict you for six months, they do know that they have legal remedies that they can actually pursue you for rent that is not paid. So if you're a small business, you find yourself in a catch-22 situation. Even if your land, uh, the landowners and the owners of the buildings allow you to defer your rent or decrease your rent, you have to make it up in the next two years. So we have legislation in place which basically is going to force tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of small businesses to go bankrupt in order to not have to meet their financial commitments. Because if they own any property, 
they own a home, I can assure you that they will, uh, that landowners will use those legal remedies in order to get their out of place. Now, as far as private rental is concerned, again, various state governments have made various noises. But again, it's the same issue. You may be able to negotiate a decrease in your rent. You may not have to. You may can't. You can't be evicted for six months. But the reality is, at the end of six months, you can be chased for any rent that is owed. You you have two years to pay any rent that is owed. So legally, once again, all the balls are in the court of the owner of the building, not the owner of the business, not the person, you know, using rental accommodation, but the actual owner of the building. They are in a particularly strong position economically, and that's currently now, because the dilemma with a shutdown is that there is no cash flow in the community. Normally in Australia, we have about $550 million of uh, interaction, you know, between people every day. Cash flow has dramatically decreased. When they say the unemployment rate is going to reach 10%, that is a fake. I hate, I hate to use Trump. It's a fake unemployment. When you add the 1.7 million temporary workers who are not entitled to a job seeker or a job keeper allowance, when you add asylum seekers and refugees, when you add the hundreds of thousands of people having difficulty accessing Centrelink and providing all the necessary documentation in order to receive benefits, and when you add those sections of the population who will uh, get JobKeeper, you are looking, you are looking at an unemployment rate between 20 to 30 percent, which is depression-era unemployment rates. And the dilemma is, because there's no cash in the community, because people are not working and not receiving wages, we have a difficult economic hard landing. And on top of that, You've got to remember, although the government will take out loans of about a trillion dollars, at the end of the COVID-19 crisis, the government will attempt to recoup that debt. And they'll recoup that debt by screwing down on people on Social Security. Not by increasing taxation, not by a levy, COVID-19 living on all uh, wage earners. But they will pursue they will pursue those people less able to pay. And we've seen that because the government continues to hold on to the concept of the robo-debt. Although robo-debt has been shown to be a, a fiction, a total fiction, what we are seeing is the government still holding on to the idea that they can actually use mechanisms like that to get people to cost off money. But the dilemma is not that. The dilemma is currently we will see many, many, many small businesses go to the wall, irrespective of the JobKeeper allowance. They may continue to function with a JobKeeper allowance, and many of their part-time workers will not be entitled they will, but when push comes to shove, if you're faced with this continuing debt 
which has been imposed by the government to uh, by closing down your business, then you're expected to make up the shortfall in the next uh, few uh, years, well, then you've got a double double load on your back, and it doesn't take much to break the campaign. Long-term, the economic costs are huge. It can take years to overcome this particular pandemic. And as I've said previously, and it's quite interesting to see that a few people are beginning to take up the idea, pandemics will occur. Not, it's a, not a 100-year event with an increasing population growth especially high-density living and enroachment, encroachment on uh, animal habitat. It's not unusual to have a viruses crossover. I mean, COVID-19 has got prob- is, it, is, it a, is a problem, but there, but there are viruses which are much worse than COVID-19, as we've seen in the past. So also, we also face the problem of the climate emergency. Let's not forget that although uh, carbon emissions will be reduced this year because of the COVID-19 crisis, because fuel consumption has decreased by 50% in the private sector and 70% in the uh, aircraft world, there will be a $2, uh, billion, two billion drop in carbon, two billion tonne drop in carbon emissions which will give us a little bit of a temporary relief, but the climate emergency is still there. And with increasing population growth, uh, limited resources or scarce resources, uh, capitalism, corporate capitalism dominates the economic system. We do have issues. We do have issues. So what we need in a so-called modern capitalist society or a postmodern capitalist society or a corporate capitalist where you've got private corporations investing privately for uh, private gain. What we need is a mechanism by which to protect the population. That's right. Protect you and me, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your brothers um, and uncles from disasters. Because there is always disaster in our world. Pandemics, Wars, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. Natural disasters, climate emergency, which don't go away. So what we need is a mechanism via which we can actually cushion the population from the worst excesses of a COVID-19 crisis, the worst excesses of a massive natural disaster that we saw with the bushfire emergency. Or a, or a climate emergency, and the list goes on and on. Because in a capitalist society, what you can and cannot do to a significant degree depends on the amount of disposable income you've got. And people are beginning to find that now. Because they haven't got wages, their disposable income has disappeared. And all they've got is, if they're really, really lucky, is enough to pay their bills. Not all of their bills, some of their bills. So we should be thinking about the concept of a universal basic income for every person in this community. A universal basic income is an income which is predetermined, say by a special committee, which looks 
after the basic needs of everybody in the population. Now, some people may decide to live on their universal basic income. Some people may decide that they want to work, and many will because they want a lot of disposable income. And what they can do, what they can do, as far as the universal basic income is concerned, which everybody receives, somebody on Social Security, a millionaire, is that that income can be recouped back by the government through the taxation system. That's right, through the taxation system. You can recoup that back. So say if you earn triple the universal basic income, that universal basic income comes back to you. But so how do you finance a universal basic income in a capitalist society? I'm not talking about revolution. I'm talking about a mixed economy. I'm talking about simple reforms which don't require sacrifice or blood in the street. Simple reforms. The way you can actually uh, finance a universal basic income is very simple. One, a 1% stock market turnover. Every time a stock or a share is sold or bought on the stock exchange, 1% automatically goes A 1% transaction tax. Every time something is bought or sold, 1% flows to the treasury. And although people may find this difficult at first, when they realise that they are actually cushioned against the worst excesses of a disaster by having a universal basic income should be should have been introduced now. Now. Instead of having job seeker allowance and going through all that garbage, uh, job keeper allowance which goes to the employer and then to the employee and obviously there'll be many unscrupulous employers who make advantage of this, make a pretty penny. The reality is, if you had a universal basic income, you wouldn't need any of that. People would hunker down, they become socially isolated, they know their basic necessities would be met and would be in a much better position as a community. So the long-term economic costs are huge. Now, currently we are seeing the debate of the day is whether the government should bail out Virgin Airlines. Uh, you know, Qantas is privately owned, although it was a government-owned airline many decades ago is privately owned. Virgin Airlines is owned by five major shareholders, mostly foreign governments. And obviously, Virgin Airlines has gone into a trading halt. It's about to go down the gurgler. This is a brilliant opportunity for the government to actually buy Virgin Airlines at a bargain basement price. Bargain basement price. And actually have a state-owned airline. Because we should be looking at the costs of what's happened over the last uh, four or five decades with privatisation. Because we are now finding ourselves in a position where essential services are privately owned. And these privately owned essential services need a cash flow in order to survive. And they cannot survive long term if the COVID-19 crisis uh, stretches in, it stretches into five, six, nine, twelve months, they'll find it exceptionally difficult to survive. So we should be looking at reversing 
what's happened in this country over the last four decades. One, we should be looking at manufacturing, which people are looking, just looking at manufacturing. Localism, local manufacturing. Because think of the carbon footprint when we import paper clips. That's right. Import tins of tomatoes as if we can't make tins of tomatoes. Although I had an interesting experience yesterday, which I'd like to share with you. Prepackaged, you know, tomato soup. You get you know, all that shape. And uh, when I got home, I had the soup. Terrible, but that doesn't matter. But I looked at the package, right? And it said that it was made in Australia. And I thought, oh, that's good. And then I looked at it and it said, with 21% Australian ingredients. Obviously, what's happened is powder's made somewhere else. It's imported into Australia. It's put it in the package. It's made 21% Australian ingredients. So why should we? be making the climate emergency worse and increasing CO2 emissions, especially in Australia, where we don't need to be a food importer, why should we actually allow the marketplace, which is basically a fancy name for private investors making private profits, to dominate us as a community? We should be in a position where we can actually produce these goods. And I'm not talking about more private companies. I'm talking about the creation of, of a third tier to the Australian economy, and that's the creation of cooperatives and collectives. Now, people in cooperatives and collectives do not get rich, but they do make goods, they do provide services, and they do get a reasonable return for the labour they put into their work. But unfortunately in this country... Most cooperatives and collectives disappear. It is impossible to get any finance for a cooperative and collective. Why shouldn't, as we've said over and over again, 1% of superannuation funds be put into a special fund, quarantined, quarantined into a special fund to provide seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives? Some will fail, many will succeed. And they'll be able to pay back that investment, 1%. I'm not talking about huge, huge difference. You've got a miserable 1%. 1%. Not difficult at all. 1%. So we should be looking at how to change the economy. Now, if you want real competition, and my apologies to Mr. Sims, you know, the current uh, chair of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, who think somehow that after this, that all the uh, corporations are going to compete again. It's a lot of garbage. Really extraordinary that we need, a, we need an organisation, a government-appointed organisation, to ensure the corporate sector compete. That's quite extraordinary when you think about it, because we don't need a corporate sector. We do not need a corporate sector. We can make changes. We don't need to have cheap holidays. We don't need to have cheap tomato soup, you know, in 57 varieties, you know, on our supermarket shelves. What we need is a sustainable community. And as I keep saying, we are at a battlefront. And the battle isn't against COVID-19 virus. That battle is being waged by most of us. That is something which is a given. This is a virus. 
it causes dislocation, it causes death, it causes permanent impairment. It does cause issues. So as a community, we are, to a significant degree, not 100%, but to a significant, significant degree, working together to contain the problem. So I'm not concerned about that, because we are working together. What I'm concerned about is what's going to happen in six months. And as far as I'm concerned, it's not going to be business as usual. It should not be business as usual. And if you allow that to occur, we deserve what we're going to get. And although draconian legislation, and I'll talk about that in a minute, is coming to play, the fact is that in a democratic society, ultimate political authority rests in the hands of the people. It doesn't rest in the hands of the bureaucracy. It doesn't rest in the hands of the government of the day. It doesn't rest in the armed forces and the police. It doesn't rest in the, in, in, in the legal system. It rests in the hands of the people. And if we forget that lesson, we deserve everything we will get at the end of the time. Let's move on to the security costs. Now, a lot of people find it a little bit unusual for me to talk about security costs. Look, we've had they understand health costs, they understand economic costs, but they don't understand security costs. And it's quite interesting that um, people are beginning to understand what security costs mean. Now, if you're an Aboriginal or a Torres Strait Islander or a young black man or woman in this country, and in certain circles, if you wear a hajib, you know, you've got a certain religious belief. You know, in your heart of heart, the police are not your friend. They are basically a mechanism of social control. If you talk to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or African young people, they will tell you how they are feeling that they are in a police state, that they are the obvious target of policing. But the rest of the community never seems to understand. They don't seem to understand. They see the police as our protectors. Now, the police are community protectors, but they also have a dual role. They're there to uphold law and order. Not just order, not just to maintain order and to protect us as a community but to maintain the law. And we know that we need a whole series of checks and balances in order to ensure that they don't get a little bit too big for their boots. And what we've seen with the declaration of a state of emergency, which gives the state government extraordinary powers regarding the individual behaviour, for example, you can't even go fishing by yourself in Victoria. It's illegal. And what the community has seen over the last few days is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and young black people see every day. And what they've seen is a concentration of a visible police presence, of people being pulled up and fined for the most extraordinary reasons. 
and they're beginning to understand that the police do have a dual role, protector, but they also there, and their primary role is to ensure the state can think. Do you think it would be any different if the government declared a state of emergency because of people like you and me been involved in protest activity? Do you think the police reaction would be any different when they are given carte blanche to do basically what they like? Instead of counselling people, instead of saying to people, look, this is not good, we'd like you to desist this behaviour and uh, go into social isolation. If you don't, we'll find you. People have been fined for the most ridiculous rate, huge fine, over $1,650 in Victoria. So what we are seeing is a lack of confidence in Victoria police and police around this country in various communities. The same lack of confidence that we see in minority groups in this country. So for once, Australians are beginning to realise what it's like to have a highly visible police presence. Our police pull you up at any time and ask you what you're doing, where you're going, what type of work you do, for no reason whatsoever. That's the first security cost. And obviously the police have understood very quickly that they need community support in order to maintain social isolation and social distancing. You need the community behind you. You cannot force millions of people to follow certain patterns of behaviour through threats. And they'll be learning that very quickly. Very quickly. I mean, we have been able to implement social distancing and social isolation laws, not because there are hundreds of thousands of police enforcing the law, but because people have seen how important it is to maintain that distancing and isolation in order to attempt to contain the damage which has been done by the COVID-19 virus. That's the first thing. That's the first security cost. Now, the second security cost is the one I'm really interested in. The type of cost we are going to see six to 12 months down the track because of increasing unemployment rates and downward pressure on Social Security benefits by governments which are attempting to uh, recoup the cost of the COVID-19 crisis. With landlords, and landladies across the country, both in the commercial and private sector, pursuing people for rents they can never pay, for banks who've deferred mortgage payments in certain situations, they continue to charge interest on them, dealing with a drop in the property market, which is some people say will be about 30%, so that many people will have negative equity, which is a fancy word for saying, they own more on their house than their house is worth. And when they go bankrupt, they are still pursued in this country by the banks for the rest of their money until they go bankrupt. There is going to be social tension in this country. And that's why I say now is a period of great opportunity. It's a period of great opportunity in terms of putting forward new ideas, 
cooperatives, collectives, uh, universal basic income, nationalised basic services, say like uh, mining, and the list goes on and on. It's a period for political, social activity. And as political activity increases, we can see governments attempting to use the same regulations which they have now used and have to maintain law and order and to maintain the status quo. And we can actually see that. So there are huge security concerns on the horizon. And people are thinking about how to maintain those in authority in authority. And don't be surprised if the state of emergency goes on much longer if it should. And don't be surprised if the armed forces and police around the country become the battering ram which the state uses to try to contain that revolt, that desire for people to live a new secure life based on Security as far as social, as far as um, essential services concerned. Security as far as the universal basic income concerned. Security as far as the ability to walk away from debt because you have been denied the ability to actually earn your living by the government. Very good reason, but you still have been denied that ability. So. There are security concerns. There are current security concerns, which uh, different police forces are dealing with in different ways. There are long-term security concerns. And it's highly likely that we will see the state of emergency continue in one form or another, especially as far as political activity, especially as far as activity outside the parliamentary sphere is concerned for some time to come because the government knows at the state level and the federal level and the corporate sector knows it is not going to be as you after COVID-19. They want the economy to rise Phoenix-like at the end of the crisis. This economy will not rise Phoenix-like at the end of the crisis. It'll be rising fits and starts People are demanding different ways of approaching these issues because one thing COVID-19 has done, it has actually highlighted how friable, how delicate, how, how the inability of corporate capitalism to deal with a crisis situation. Even in the corporate world today, Mr Sims the head of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission of the Green Light to cooperate and not compete. Because during any type of crisis, cooperation is the key. The key to social isolation and social distancing is cooperation. The key to people staying home is not draconian laws in the state of emergency, but us acting as one community and cooperating for our own benefit. The key to a stable, strong future is, again, cooperation, not competition. So it would be a pity for us to waste what I think 
is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Irrespective of what I've done over the last 50 years, what's happened in the last three to four weeks has highlighted the people, hundreds of thousands, not millions of people in this country and around the world, of the inadequacy of a system based on private investment for private profit to provide the basic necessities that are required for life in this world today. And we only have to look at what's happening in the United States to understand what happens when you don't actually have the infrastructure there, which is there to look after people. And let's not forget, and I'll say this over and over again, because we owe a great debt of gratitude to all those people that you have known over the decades, all those people that were born before us, who fought tooth and nail, who paid the sacrifice, and I'm not talking about people going overseas to fight other people's wars, as we will celebrate on Anzac Day in a few days' time. But I'm talking about all those working people, all those unemployed people, all those people who struggle for a just society, for a public health system, for Medicare, for a pharmaceutical health system, for a social security net, not a welfare net, but a social security net. Social security, as I keep saying on this program, is a two-way exercise. You provide the basic necessities to people who cannot uh, achieve that situation in life for peace and quiet. It's very simple. And that's what the government needs to understand. Now, I don't want to continue about the COVID-19 crisis, but I am encouraging you. I'm encouraging you to join public support. I am encouraging you to do that. You're involved in extra-parliamentary and We'd also like to be involved in parliament. Public interest before now, I've had a number of increased inquiries over the last few days, which is heartening. Uh, but the thing is, if you want change, it needs to be organised. Not just on the streets, but in terms of giving those in Parliament, those established political parties, a bit of a run for their money. And public interest before corporate interest are the people we've been waiting We are the people we've Nobody else is going to take up these issues from Once the COVID crisis, uh, 19 crisis is over, it's all going to be about business as usual. It's going to be about deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation. People forget very quickly, especially those in authority. It's going to be about state of emergency. It's going to be about trying to stamp out uh, extra-parliamentary uh, political activity. So it's up to us to become a political force. And I encourage you to join public. Now, you can try before you buy. Now, we're not going to throw in any steak knives. All you've got to do is go to the website, pipsy.net. Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I.net. Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I.net. Download the application. Now, I know there are many listeners who are not on the net or don't have any printers and can't download. Just give me a call. Leave a message on 0439 395 
zero four three nine three nine five four eight nine. Download the application, uh, ring me, and I'll send you out a heap of application forms. This is a great time for thinking and reading and reflecting, especially if you lost your job and you're stuck at home. This is a time to join public interest. So I'd like to see by the end of September that we will be in a position to apply for registration as a federal political party. And if you want to look at our policies, go to pipsy.net. Pipsy.net. Okay? Don't forget. Look, you can be a carping, cringing, complaining consumer for the rest of your life. It'll all be ruined. It'll never change. It's somebody else's fault. You know, if only God intervened, she has a deal. But the dilemma is that ultimately every forward step the human race has taken has been started by an individual or a small group and that individual or small group has been able to convince other people and create a political brush fire and change That's what public interest or corporate is about. Although we formed in 2015, we still haven't got 550 members on the federal electoral roll because people just didn't see. I think this crisis will highlight to people the need to create a society where the interests of the many, which is the public, but also is always put for the interests of the few, which is you know, a large corporation, major now, I'm, I'm almost crying crocodile tears these days. I hear about all these small investors who are hurting. Well, small investors don't matter. They don't care about small What they care about is basically the corporates. And if you want to get involved in that fight, if you want to create a mixed economy, you want a universal basic income, you want a strong public health sector, you want a Society-based with a strong cooperative and collective element in the economic package. I encourage you to join public. Let's move on. Now, the West Papuan situation has not changed. It's actually become more complex with the introduction of COVID-19. Right. As you know, regular listener to the program, 2014, I've been the convener of the uh, West Papuan Independent uh, Rent Collective which is a group of people like you and me, you know, just ordinary people like you and me, or extraordinary people like who fork up the rent, you know, to pay for the rent on the West Papuan office, which they have a document. Now, currently, the West Papuan office is in, uh, is in a virtual shutdown, which means they are working virtually to promote the cause of West Papuan independence. And normally at this time of the year, we would have had a, uh, a meeting, a uh, public meeting regarding the rent collective member, rent collective members, encourage new members to join the rent collective. Now, just in case you're wondering what's happening with our current uh, uh, building owner, well, we are in negotiations for West Papua Rent Collective, not the West Papua Rent Collective, but the West Papua people are in negotiation regarding a drop in rent over the next month because So this Sunday, on the 19th of April, 
That's right. This Sunday, on the 19th of April, the West Papua office in Melbourne is going to have a West Papua Open Day Web in R seminar. You like that? A Web in R seminar. And if you want to be part of it, you've got to register. And you go, and the web page to register at is DFAT, D F A I T, dot Federal Republic of West Papua dot org. So it's DFAT, D F A I T, dot Federal Republic of West Papua dot org. And it will go on from uh, 2 o'clock to 3.30 p.m. this Sunday, the 19th of April. I'll be um, participating. Uh, as the uh, convener of the West Papua Rent Collective, I think it's very important that during this difficult time that we continue to support the West Papua office. It is the only office in the world which is run, run, 100% run by the West Papua Independent Office. There are some solidarity offices around the world, but they are solidarity offices. The Rent Collective only provides the rent for the office. We do not interfere in any way in the running of the office. The West Papuan activists who are involved in that independent struggle make the decisions regarding what they do, how they conduct their campaign. So we would like to continue this. This is our sixth year. Sixth year the West Papuan Rent Collective has been supporting uh, the West Papuan independence struggle in this country. This is our sixth year that we've been supporting that struggle. So if you are internet savvy, I encourage you to go to DFAT, D-F-A-I-T dot Federal Republic of West Papua dot org. Have a look at the links and uh, register to be part of the West Papua Open Day webinar on Sunday the 19th of April from uh, 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. That's 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Now, they've got a, quite an interesting uh, lineup of uh, guest speakers, and uh, the theme is Doug Hammersgold, West Papua United Nations. For those of you who don't remember Doug Hammersgold, you're a bit too young. He was the United Nations uh, Secretary General who, was in, who uh, had great plans for the independence of West Papua, but died mysteriously in a plane accident. Uh, Jacob Rumbiak uh, will be doing a welcoming us. Uh, Clovis Mwamba, he'll be uh, talking about the ill-fated voyage of Doug Hamagol to the Congo. And Dr Roger Keller will be looking at Doug as a poet and photographer. So I'll make a few comments regarding the West Papua Rent Collective, but I think the important thing is that we need to support this independence. Is one of the last colonial um, possessions on the planet Earth. Uh, the Indonesians have created mayhem and chaos. And those of you who have been following the struggle can see how difficult it has been for our West Papuans over the last uh, few decades, especially over the last few, few years. And uh, with the uh, introduction of COVID-19, well, obviously, it's, uh, it's a huge issue. Now, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming from the studios of the 3CR in Melbourne, studios of 3CR in Melbourne, which continues to function despite...
social isolation with the use of the uh, technology and the few permanent staff or part-time staff in uh, 3CR, we've been able to broadcast live, as we've done over the last 42 years, the Anarchist World this week, in its various guises, and we'll continue to broadcast live as long as we can. Uh, but uh, I'd also like to thank all those wonderful people of the Community Radio Network who have continued to ensure that the Anarchist World this week is broadcast across Australia. And don't forget, it's also heard around the world because it's streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, a few useful pieces of information. Now, you can always write to me, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 305. In an era of mass communication, it's good to see that Australia Post, although they tried to close it down a few years ago, still functioning. So send me a letter if you're not computer literate. Send me a letter. Post Office Box 20, Parkville, 305. You can leave a message on 0439 That's right, 0439395489. You can go to the YouTube channel. That's right, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Every year, not every year, every week I try to do a uh, post on Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You go to the webpage, pipsy.net. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. You can go to my personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. You can go to a number of public housing um, pages, and the list goes on and on and on. Because although we are in lockdown, although we are in social isolation, although there is social distancing, we are continuing to be active in this country. Not only have we been active, we are planning for the future. We are planning for a post-COVID-19 world. We will not only destroy the virus of COVID-19, but we destroy the virus of globalisation, corporatisation, deregulation and privatisation. As I said before, the ball's in your court. You can think it's too hot to handle, or you can join us, because we need everybody we can on deck at the end of this crisis to ensure that we continue to uh, have the same and better conditions and rights that we enjoy today. Fortunately, with people like you, this is the Anarchist World this week, I am confident that we can actually change the trajectory, trajectory not even that word of this country. I'm sure we can change the direction this country will be going in in the very near future. So thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. And don't forget, the program is podcast. You can go to the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. And don't forget to listen to the Anarchist World this week, next week, by your local community radio station. Once again... Thank you to the people of 3CR for ensuring the Anarchist World this week continues to be broadcast live by the community radio network across this country, north to south, east to west, up and down. The evil minds that plot destruction. Community radio station. Next week. In the fields of bodies burning
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.